0: Good morning. I'm Erin Krusevich. This is my husband, Jason. We're very excited to be here this morning and want to give you just a little bit of a picture about um, how this morning came about. It didn't start here in Tustin. It actually started with a church in Zambia who realized that there was an incredible need of children living right in their community who had been orphaned. And so as a church body, they decided to take one Sunday and bring hope to and stand with the children right there in their community who had been orphaned, and this ignited a now global movement. It started in Zambia, then it went across the continent of Africa, and finally it reached the U.S. So this Sunday that we're having today is really a picture of a global movement of the church taking a moment or a Sunday to pause and reflect and pray about how we as a church can come and answer the call that, that God wants us to care for the orphan. There are an estimated 153 million children who have been orphaned in the world. 18 million of those have lost both parents. There are 400,000 children currently in the U.S. foster system. This is a holy assignment. God is the father of the fatherless. He sets the lonely in families. And in James 1, he talks about the fact that pure religion is caring for the widows and the orphans.
1: And this isn't just about kids in Africa or kids in our foster care system this is our story Jesus taught us to call God our father in Ephesians it talks about how he adopted us into his family and that we share an inheritance with Jesus in God and so when we talk about becoming advocates for kids we're talking about doing what God is already doing. Something that is at the heart of the gospel. It's his heart. Would you pray with me? God, I lift up this morning. I pray that you would stir our hearts. I pray that you would challenge us, God. How can we join you in what you are already doing? Help us as a church family, God, to become advocates for kids who have no voice. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: We're excited to focus today and really ask that question, how can we be the hands and feet of Jesus to children who have been orphaned? And we're excited to do that through a guest speaker today. So we just want to give you a little bit of an intro of who's going to be sharing with you. His name is Pastor Johnny Carr. He is husband to Beth. He has five children. Three of those children came to him through adoption, two from China, one from the U.S. foster care system. He spent time as a full-time pastor, then he worked for Bethany Christian Services as the National Director of Church Partnerships, and more recently, he's the author of this very cool book I'd highly recommend called Orphan Justice, which talks about ways that we can care for the orphan beyond adoption. And one of the things that I love, it even says it on the back of the book, no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. So as an adoptive and foster parent, as an expert on orphan care, and as somebody who is really challenging the church to step up and take ownership of the global orphan crisis, please welcome with us, Johnny Carr.
2: Well, good morning. You're gonna have to bear with me. Uh, October, November is my busy travel season, so I've been in Mississippi and Michigan and South Carolina and California and back home in Pittsburgh, and with it, I have an allergy from every place. So uh, pardon me as I have to drink some water today. Uh, Thank you, Pastor, for recognizing the veterans. I grew up in a military town. Uh, Anniston, Alabama is uh, home to Fort McClellan. And some of you probably came through there. It was the uh, the MP school, the uh, chemical training facility. And uh, for many, many folks going World War II, they came through and did their basic training at uh, Fort McClellan there in northeast Alabama. So military life has just always been part of of our family and who we are. So thank you, veterans, for for uh, for all that you've done for for our country today I'm going to share with you a, 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 a sermon that it's going to be a little different. Now, here's the thing. You, you may think that you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm, I'm 79 years old. I'm not going to adopt a child. Good. <laughs> you don't need to. I'm not going to ask you to do that either. You, you may be eight years old and you're thinking, well, you know, I'm just looking for somebody to take care of me. So uh, this, is, this is not just a sermon about adoption. We're going to talk about it, but uh, that was one of the reasons I wrote the book, was there are so many ways for us to be able to get involved. So I don't want you to tune me out, not yet. Uh, Maybe my southern accent will, will keep the interest up a little bit. But we're going to talk about a story that may be one of the most familiar stories in Scripture. Uh, other than the, the Christmas story and the Easter story, the birth of Jesus, and then the crucifixion and resurrection, one of the most uh, familiar stories, especially in our country, is uh, one out of the book of Luke. Where, uh, we're going to read from Luke today on the Good Samaritan. Um, you know, it's. Uh, I was watching an NFL game one night, and John Madden, uh, back just a couple of years ago, was talking about Derrick Brooks. Uh, Derrick was a linebacker in Tampa Bay, and Derrick was from Pensacola, Florida, and we were living in Pensacola at the time. And he was from Washington High School, and that was the school my wife taught at. So my ears were really perking up as he was talking about Derek. And he was talking about the good things that Derek was doing off the field and how he was helping the community back in Pensacola. And, and uh, he, after he kind of told some of that, he said, you know, he's just a good Samaritan. And and it hit me. Everybody knew what he was talking about. It's, it's really just become kind of common uh, vocabulary. Uh, even the last episode of Seinfeld was the Good Samaritan episode. You remember that? Jerry and his friends get arrested because they didn't help a guy who was being robbed. And so they got him on the Good Samaritan law. But as with most stories in Scripture, there's a lot more to it than what Jerry Seinfeld might say about it. There's a pretty deep story here, and I'd like for us to look at it together. It's in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start reading in uh, verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. He says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, this was a very common thing for these, uh, these uh, experts in the Old Testament to do. And uh, they were challenging Jesus all the time. And so he said, uh, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus had just shared a little bit about coming to faith and following him. And, and this guy's got his chest poked out because he's an expert. He's an expert. And so he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus said. How do you read it? In other words, I know you're the expert. You tell me. And he answered. I bet it was quick too and loud. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Got his chest poked out like old Barney Fife would when he had the right answer for something. And then as he got to the second part, I could almost see him begin to deflate a little bit. Because I think as he began to read the second part of this, or he began to to say the second part of this, that he realized Jesus had turned the tables on him. And when he read, or when he said, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because I think he realized he had not loved his neighbor as himself, and the crowd probably knew it, and Jesus certainly knew it. Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now, here's how we know he knew Jesus had turned the tables. In one modern translation, that says, and wanting to justify himself or looking for a loophole. Looking for a loophole and trying to get out of how Jesus had turned the tables back on him. He says, well, exactly who is my neighbor? Let's play the semantic game a little bit here, Jesus. Exactly who qualifies as my neighbor? And it's out of that question that Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. He says, but he, uh, 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 Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put him on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. And Jesus said, which of these three was neighbor to the one who had fell into the hands of the robbers? And he said, the one that had mercy on him. Jesus had turned the tables back on him and he's sharing this story of this Good Samaritan. And the interesting thing is the the, the people Jesus uses to tell the story with, the characters that he chooses. The the first one is the man who was beat up. And what do we know about that man? Absolutely nothing. And I think that's important because I don't think that it matters. It was a human, it was a person. Who was in need. It was a person who had been robbed and beat up and bloodied and left on the side of the road who was dying. We don't know if they were if they were a Jew, if they were Samaritan, if they were what they were. We don't know. Jesus doesn't say. The other three characters that he gives us first is the priest. The priest, the religious pastor of the day, the Levite. The other religious leaders of the day. It says the priest, when he came and saw him, he stepped to the other side of the road and kept going. The Levite, when he came and saw him, he steps to the other side of the road and keeps going. What was Jesus trying to tell us through that? I, I, I try not to read too much into this, but I just think it's very interesting that Jesus would use the religious establishment of the day to be the ones who did not stop and help this man growing up in north alabama we would pray for snow every year i know you don't even pray for it out here it's not even an option but man we would pray for it and about once every three years we would get a little bit and you know we'd shut down for about a month and we'd get an inch of snow up there And (laughs) man they'd come on and talk about it and you'd go to the store and buy all the bread and milk and and uh... we still don't know why people do that imagine yourself if you've ever been out in the woods and some of those areas all those curvy windy roads and all those rolling hills back in the east and imagine yourself on one of those roads late one night and it's cold 33 degree rain and a deer jumps out in front of you and your car goes off in the ditch and uh, you're 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 all bloodied up you can't get the car out you you know that no one ever travels this road and and, and so you're beginning to think, man, this is how I'm going to die. Your, your cell phone's busted up, or, or if you're like me and have Sprint, you have no coverage. Um, <laughs> Sprint CEO doesn't go here. Did? Okay. <laughs> there you are. You're thinking, well, this is it. This is, this is how it's going to be over for me. And, and all of a sudden you hear a car coming you're thinking, man, this is a miracle. There's never a car out here on this road this time of night. And as the car gets closer, you look and, and you start to lock eyes with the driver and you think, wait a minute, I know who that is. It's pastor Dave. (laughs) And he looks at you and you look at him and he drives right on by you think now wait a minute lord this is not how this is supposed to work and then you hear another car coming and you're amazed now this thing sounds a little bit bigger it's larger and you can tell it's more of a bus and it gets closer and you look up on the front it says calvary church on it and inside are the elders and deacons and teachers and leaders of the church and they're all in there and they just wave and just keep going right on by <laughs> is that possibly the picture that jesus was painting That when this man was beat up, bloodied, and bruised, and left on the side of the road to die, that it was the church who kept going. But a Samaritan, (laughs) oh man, anything but a Samaritan. You talk about racism. They hated Samaritans. The half-breeds were their nicknames for them. It was a terrible insult. But a Samaritan came where the man was. He had pity on him, and he picks him up and puts him on his own animal. He pours oil and wine on his wounds, takes him to an inn, and takes care of him. I want us to focus on that for just a moment. What is it about that Samaritan? What what are the things that we can learn? Here's the big idea. That Samaritan took on the pain of someone else, and by doing so, it cost him. And when we get involved in the lives of others who are hurting, when we get involved in the lives of those who have been left on the side of the road and, 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 and beat up and bloodied and bruised by life, whether it's a friend going through cancer or someone who's lost a job or someone going through a divorce or some other uh, a terrible thing that's happened in their life, or as we would talk about children today, some that have been born with a disability and kicked out of their family. What can we learn from that Samaritan? The first thing that we can learn is this. It cost him emotionally. The Bible says that he got involved. he, He had pity on him. His heart was moved. He could not just keep walking down the road and leave this man there. And when we emotionally get engaged in someone else's life, it means that we're having a change of heart. And it's really the way that God wired us. When we talk about fellowship, fellowship's a lot more than a cup of coffee and a donut. Real fellowship is when we enter into the pain of each other's lives. And we walk with them and we pray with them and we go with them through that pain. And when we leave and go home, we can't just turn the switch and turn that off and leave it. It goes with us and it costs us emotionally. I had a good friend uh, back in 1994, the tornado came through Piedmont, Alabama on on, uh, Palm Sunday. And that little church only sat about 80 people and they had 100 that day because they were having a little program for the kids, uh, for Palm Sunday program, 20 children waiting to come up on the stage. And the tornado went by and blew that roof over to the side and it sat down on that whole congregation killing all 20 of those kids. A good friend of mine was a state trooper, and he was the first person on the scene in the prime of his career. But after dealing with all the things he had to deal with that day, he took an early retirement after that because it cost him emotionally. The second thing that we see that it cost him was some time. You see, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a road of commerce. If you were on that road, typically you were going to either have money to go to the other place to buy things or you were going to have things that you had either just purchased or you were going to sell them and so this was a strategic place for these robbers to hang out and so it was known as a dangerous road and and so you wanted to get from point a to point b as quickly as you could if you were on this road you had an agenda and you had a schedule and what we see with this samaritan is he changed his schedule to enter into the pain of this man who was left there the third thing is very similar to it it'll also cost us some comfort and that means our priorities change that road actually had a nickname and it was called the bloody way because of the number of thieves and robbers that would hang out on the road there were certain parts of it that actually had garrisons built where guards would would actually watch over it but they couldn't watch over the whole thing And so as this priest and Levi were walking down the road, you know, when I first started studying this, I thought, man, they were just cold hearted. Why didn't they stop and help? The more I studied this and the more I looked into it, I thought, you know, maybe they didn't stop and help because they were scared. It was too risky. And maybe in their head, they justified. Now, Lord, that guy's beat up there. But if I stop and help him, there's going to be two of us beat up. Then what are we going to do?" So maybe it was that this priest and Levite justified in their head the danger and the calculating all of that together and saying, this is not a smart thing for me to do. One night I was flying back home from Chicago and I'd been on some meetings on the south end and it was uh, winter time so getting dark very early and I was driving back up to Midway Airport and I needed to refuel my car. And uh, on the way, uh, uh, I just put it in the GPS, you know, gas station close to the airport there at Midway. And if you've ever been to Chicago, that south side down below the airport, it's kind of that area that's usually in the news for the gangs and the murders and all those types of things. And, you know, my GPS doesn't know that. So I pulled into a gas station and I got out and I began to look around and I realized I was the only person with a sport coat on. And I thought, well, just don't make eye contact with anybody. Just get this car filled up and get out of here. And, and so I'm filling the car up, and, and the Lord speaks to me and says, uh, you know, you travel around preaching this sermon all the time. What if you looked up right now and saw a lady, and her car was broken down across the street? Would you have the guts to go and help her? And uh, I replied, Lord, if you'll give me about five minutes, I'll talk to you about that. <laughs> Let me get back on the road <laughs> first. Sometimes getting involved in the pain of others is risky. But when we do that and our priorities change, it means instead of looking out for number one, looking out for me, I'm putting the needs of others ahead of me. The last thing that we see that cost him was some money. He poured his oil and wine on this man's wounds. He poured on the wine for healing as a disinfectant and the the oil for soothing expensive stuff maybe stuff he was either taking to sell or had just bought and then he takes him to the inn tells the innkeeper the next day here's two denarii i've got to continue on my business i don't know how long he needs to stay but ever how long it is just put it on my tab and when i come back through i'll pay for it i'll cover it Getting involved in the pain of someone else's lives and what we see from this story is that it cost him emotionally some time, some comfort, and some money. Now, I want you to hear me very clearly when I tell you this. I did not fly out here to come and speak to you today and tell you that I'm a good Samaritan. Frankly, I came to confess that I was that priest, that pastor, who for so many years kept stepping to the other side of the road, until one day we realized the one who was left on the side, beat up, bloodied, and bruised was our son. Not by birth and not even legally, but in our hearts. You see, I met Beth when we were in college. We were at Jacksonville State University in Northeast Alabama. We were at a Baptist campus ministry meeting one night, and I had the uh, opportunity to get up and talk in front of people, and uh, as you can tell, I enjoy that. (laughs) Um, I wasn't shy about that kind of stuff, and and it was also a good way to get girls, so um, I wanted to speak. And and, uh, so I'm up speaking that night, and I'm looking, and there's a girl who's doing sign language for a girl who's deaf who was there. And the girl who was deaf was Heather Whitestone. Heather, two years later, would become Miss America, you may remember, in the mid-90s. Uh, Heather Whitestone, the first Miss America with a disability, she was deaf, and and so Beth, who would become my wife, was her interpreter. And I thought Beth was better looking than Miss America, so I chased her around for a while. And our relationship began to get serious pretty quickly, and and uh, not long after we we were dating, she told me, she said, "You need to understand that one day I want to adopt a deaf child." Well, that's a pretty heavy conversation for for about your fifth date or something, and. And I looked at her and again, saw how pretty she was. And I said, me too. I've dreamed of that all my life, honey. Where have you been? Little did I know she was serious about that thing. And um, I promised her a white picket fence. I promised her everything, you know. And so we got married and, and I was in the ministry and we were in Pensacola, Florida, and serving in the fastest growing church in the panhandle of Florida. It was just amazing what we were able to enjoy during that time, and, and uh, living about 30 miles from the beach down there in that beautiful white sand of Pensacola, and, and God had blessed us with two kids by birth, Heather and Jared, and, and uh, we were just really living the American dream. And my missions pastor came to me one day, and, and Beth did complete her degree in deaf education, and she became a teacher for the deaf, and and so uh, my missions pastor came to me and said, hey, I've got a friend coming through tonight. He's a missionary, and he works with the deaf in Belarus. So I thought you guys might be interested in meeting him. And I said, oh, yeah, I know Beth Wood, and it would be great to hear his ministry. And so we go and sit down to dinner with him, and he says, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the people I'm ministering to is actually a deaf orphanage. It's this orphanage, and all the kids in it are deaf. And I said, check, please, because <laughs> I, I know where this is leading. Um And that was in January of 2005, and sure enough, that began a conversation again. And we rolled on over into February, and I came home from a deacon's meeting one night, and Heather and Jared were in the bed, and and Beth, again, we we began talking about this, and and I said, well, tomorrow I will call and get some answers, because that was a big thing for me. I was scared about how much it would cost and how long it would take and all those things, and of course, everything I thought about it was wrong. Because I've got a crazy uncle like you probably have, and, and, you know, he's always got the worst case scenario for everything in life, and he knows everything. If you can't think of who your crazy uncle is, it's you, so you better be thinking about (laughs) it. So we, uh, the next day, I, I got on the internet and Googled Belarus International Adoption and came up with an agency, actually right out here in Orange County, California, called the guy up, Ron Stoddard, I'll never forget it. And uh, I said, uh, you know, here's the deal. And he said, well, Belarus is shut down. You can't adopt from Belarus for government, governmental reasons, different things. What are you thinking? And I said, well, just we don't care where the child's from, but we're just thinking we, we know we, we're equipped to adopt a child that's deaf. We'd like for them to be under the age of six because of birth order stuff and all that. And then um, no other disability. I said, I can't handle any other disability. Remember that for later. And uh, he said, uh, well, that's fairly specific. If I ever hear of anything, I'll let you know. Ten minutes later, he called me back and said, check your email. And that's what I saw. Oh, stop. He is not that cute. Oh, he is a 13-year-old boy that stinks right now. (laughs) Y'all are getting me messed up seven months to the day later, we were in central China meeting this little boy. And as you can see, Heather and Jared were with us. And uh, um, it was amazing what God was about to do in our life. We didn't know. We just didn't know. The next day, we all climbed into a van and we drove about an hour away to the city where he was from and we went to the orphanage and as we pulled into the gates of the orphanage James looked around like hey I know this place then as we pulled in and they turned the van off and we started to get out he just kind of sank down and put his head on my shoulder and put his arm around me as if to say oh well that was fun for a while so being deaf he had no communication no sign language I just I just held him I was trying to let him know that, no, you're my son now. We're just here for a quick meeting, and then we're going to be out of here, and we're going back to America because you're going to be a car kid. And as we went in, we had the meeting, and then they walked out into this courtyard area, and the courtyard had about 20 to 25 special needs kids in it. They were all in these little makeshift high chairs with a little tray on the front and a hole in the seat with a pan underneath it, and there was no movement. They didn't giggle, they didn't laugh, they didn't point, they didn't do anything. Some were sleeping, some just had their heads hung back, others were just kind of staring off into space, and we didn't stop there, it's almost like a movie where you're there forever but you're not there at all, and we walked into the baby room, and in the baby room there were two babies in each bed, kind of feet to feet, and, and same blank stare that we saw on the kids outside. And I'm holding James, and I just remember thinking, I don't want Heather and Jared to even see what I'm seeing. And I began to push them back towards the door. And when I did, James lost it. James began to just scream as loud as he could scream, and his grip around my neck got so tight that he literally started choking me. I reached up to loosen his grip, and it was at that moment that God began to change and challenge everything in our life. He began to challenge me in my approach to theology. He began to challenge me in my approach to church growth. He began to challenge me in my own personal budget. He began to challenge me in the way we were living our lives. Now I want you to understand something real clearly here. The folks at that orphanage were doing the best they could. Almost all these kids had some type of disability. Many of them had cleft lip and cleft palate. They loved the kids. They just didn't have the resources To be able to help them. We were told that 95 out of 100 kids passed away that went into this orphanage. I love China, for any of my Chinese brothers and sisters that might be here, I love China. And we got very involved, and we saw that orphanage turn around, and we saw some things happen there. But when we came home from that trip, I began to study two things. I began to study what does God's Word say? about caring for orphans because I knew it was in there. I'd heard these little passing phrases and then I began to study what is the reality. And as I look through the Old Testament, there's this theme throughout the Old Testament of the orphan, the widow and the alien or the stranger or sojourner or whatever word you want to use there. But basically he's talking about those that are helpless. And, and God is just very clear about our responsibility and the privilege that it is that we have to care for them and then we get over into the new testament and our friend shared that from from up here earlier james 1 you know james is the book of action right james is the one that says faith without works is dead and james is very emphatic in his writing and do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that and and in chapter 1 verse 26 he talks about how when we run our mouth all the time that our religion is useless And then in verse 27, he says, but pure and undefiled religion is this, caring for orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Growing up a Southern Baptist in Alabama, we had that thing about keeping ourselves unspotted from the world down pretty good. I didn't drink, I didn't chew, and I didn't go with the girls that would do that kind of stuff, right? (laughs) But when it came to caring for orphans, we had no plan. We had no ministry, we had no organized way, we had no emphasis, there was no talking about it, and it just began to burden me as a pastor that I want my people to experience pure and undefiled religion. And so God began to teach us and mold us in that, and then I began to ask the question, what is the reality? You heard some of those numbers, I appreciate the way they shared those too, that 153 million, these are all estimates, we don't know. You know, I've got one friend. He's always looking for the bad side of things, and he said, "Oh, those numbers are blown up." I said, "Well, cut it in half. Are you feel better?" <laughs> Seventy million orphans. Are you going to sleep better tonight? But it doesn't mean that they've lost both parents. You, the way that that number is derived, they say one or both parents. And here's why: because in developing countries, there's still very much a patriarchal mindset where when the, when the, you have to have a male leader in the home to really have a say in society. And so two-thirds of the time, the father dies first. And when that happens, the mother and the surviving children lose all rights in many of these countries. They lose the right to education and to, to, they lose the right to land ownership. They lose the right to even basic medical care in a lot of times. If the father or mother even has died of something like HIV and AIDS, then they are ostracized from their community. They are put out and they are put, it's like a scarlet letter on them, that they are put out of that community and they don't want anything else to do with them or their children. Right now, what we're seeing in, in West Africa with Ebola, you can imagine what's happening there now. As mothers and fathers are dying and these children are left behind and they're kicked out, of their towns and villages to be on their own and no one wants to touch them. Imagine the hysteria there, what if we had five people that have had it in the United States and you'd think it's all that's ever happened here if you looked at Facebook. Imagine what's happening there with thousands of people and the number of kids that are now left without anything. And that's why I wrote Orphan Justice was to get in and look at these different issues that these kids face from HIV and AIDS to poverty to living in orphanages. And we, we think that, well, we'll just go build an orphanage and then we will get them off the street. But guess what? You just, there's not a family. And the last time I looked at Scripture and I looked at the gospel itself, it's all about family. We've got to do better. We can't be satisfied with a child living their life outside of a family. We can't be satisfied with that. It might be a temporary measure. So as we began to look and see, there's 18 million of these kids that have lost both parents. Some of them still have living relatives. But there are still millions of kids that do need to be adopted. And in many of these countries, because of mystical beliefs about special needs or because of these beliefs about HIV and AIDS or other disease, people within their own communities will not adopt them. And that's where international adoption does still play a role. It's very different now. You don't see many people adopt internationally and come back with a healthy infant. Now they're adopting kids with disabilities. They're adopting children that are 6 years old, 7 years old, 10 years old. And when they come back here to this church, they don't fit in because their kids weren't raised in their family and they weren't raised to behave. They weren't raised to... These kids are in shock and for culturally speaking and and learning a new language and learning to eat new foods and all those other types of things. And that's where many of you come in. Some of you need to come around these families that are adopting children out of the foster system here in the United States or internationally that have really altered their lives to invest in these children's lives. There's a place and a role for each one of us. It may be in trafficking. Man, I love that there's all types of booths. You'll hear about them in just a moment. There's all types of organizations out here today that you can get up and walk out of here and go out to one of those booths and sign up to be a part of one of those ministries in some way. You don't have to adopt a child. You don't have to be a foster parent. There are so many other ways for you to get involved and I love what, the, what you guys are doing here in making that available for you today. We adopted uh, Xiaoli in 2007, show you a picture of her, she's also from China and Xiaoli is also profoundly deaf. And then in 2011 we got a call about a little boy in the foster system when we were still living in Florida and that's the picture and I promise you he ain't that sweet. That boy, (laughs) he's gonna be the death of me. (laughs) That kid was born at 25 weeks weighed a pound and three ounces, and had a diaphragmic hernia. Children born at full term with a diaphragmic hernia have a 50% chance of living. I've ha- I literally had one doctor when we moved and he got a new doctor. When she read all of that and understood, she just literally started crying. She said, I've never seen a child live that went through all of that. J.J. had a G-tube inserted because his esophagus had not formed properly because of that hernia and and so he took all of his nutrition by G-Tube until about a year ago, and we finally had that removed. We've been going to feeding therapy, and he's learning how to eat now like us, and, and uh, it's, it's a long road if any of you have ever been down that with a child that at five years old for the first time or chewing food up. It can be very difficult. We We moved, and we went to a new church, and and because of the g-tube and he he i'm getting kind of gross here but you can't vomit when he had the the nissan wrap put in and so so when he would get sick and he would often you would have to hook up the tube and allow it to vent and and so we we went to this church and this banker was working in the nursery and and i handed him the diaper bag and i said oh let me pull out this bag and it says emergency kit and i said so if he starts choking what you want to do is take this tube and you hook it up right here and He just threw his arms up and says, man, I'm a banker. I can't do that. (laughs) We went to another church, and I I had learned not to be so forward and kind of ease into that conversation with the new nursery workers, and and I'm having it, and the lady says, I'm a nurse at Children's Hospital. What size G-tube does he have? Go to church and don't worry about it. And the more families that you have are reaching out, there are families out here that have children born to them with special needs, They don't come to church because they feel like they're a burden. They fight with the school system. They fight with doctors and nurses. They fight with all these other things in life. They're not going to come and fight to get extra care for their kid at church. They'll just stay home. There's a great opportunity for us. And it will take all of us working together to say that, you know what? You're not a burden to us. You are a blessing to us. And for that two hours on a Sunday morning, you can go and worship. We're going to take care of your child here because it's a blessing here's a picture of all of us now our oldest is at Oklahoma Baptist University she's a sophomore Jared's 15 now James and Shalee are both 13 JJ will be seven next week and you know what this is just a picture of the beauty of the gospel right there in Galatians chapter 4 he says that that because you are his sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba Father, where we can have that direct connection to God and we can call him our daddy. It's that affectionate term for him as father. He says, and so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you an heir. The beautiful thing about that picture is this. One day Beth and I will die and those five kids will sit around a table with some attorney. And he's going to divide up our $12 five ways. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. He's not going to give it to the two white kids that look like us because each one has equal access and equal rights to the car family name. And let me tell you something, friend. That's exactly what Jesus does. When he adopts us, when we accept Christ and we come into a relationship with him, he makes us an heir, as Paul says right here. And we get a new name, we get a new family, and we have a new future. That's the beauty of the gospel. And there's all kinds of colors and there's all kinds of cultures. There's all types together. And we're in that one family name. I don't know what God is speaking to you about today. I don't know what God is doing in your heart. But here's what I pray. I pray that you'd be open. I pray that you would consider what God has put before you today. I pray that you would take time to visit those booths and learn and figure out what is a way that I can get involved so that I can understand pure and undefiled religion. And if you're here this morning and you've never come into a relationship with Christ, I want you to know this is what it looks like. That we... Can be adopted into his family and receive a new future, a new name, and a new family. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to share today. Lord, there's so many, so many kids that are in need all around us right now, right here in our county, in our community, in our country, and in our world. It can be overwhelming but Lord, you've given us specific ways that we can get involved. And I pray that our hearts would be open to whatever it is and we would respond appropriately. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.
3: Um, Johnny's wrecked me in good ways (laughs) this morning. This is my buddy, Curtis Yates, and we get to serve on our uh, orphan care team ministry here at Calvary, and uh, we did a little video showing you how some of the people here at Calvary have been involved in orphan care, In Johnny's book, Orphan Justice, it talks about not everyone can do everything, but we can all do something, something like that, <laughs> but check out the video and you can see some of the people here at Calvary and what they're doing. Two young boys from Latvia this summer.
0: No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. We're helping orphans by being involved with Acres of Love, an organization in South Africa that rescues kids and makes sure that all children belong in
1: families. I'm going to help orphans by sharing my room with a boy from South Africa who's
4: eventually going to become my brother.
1: I help a girl who is in an orphanage to go to college. And I help a boy in Rwanda named Gene Bosco so, um, so he doesn't become an orphan. Well,
0: we have two adopted grandchildren who we are helping our daughter and son-in-law raise by well, having them for overnighters and um, helping with homework sometimes after school since mom and dad work full-time and um, quite often we just are there to diffuse some difficult
1: situations, but we're enjoying it very much. Giving love to a baby impacts their entire developmental future, but even more important is giving love to teenagers. Every teenager needs to know that they have a voice, and their voice matters, and they need someone who will validate their emotions and be their champion and their defender, and someone that they know that they can depend on. And we got connected with Safe Families for Children. So we've been uh, hosting kids who just need some temporary housing. We
0: have two children of our own, a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a baby on the way. So it's easy to think we're too busy to help. But We know how hard this job can be, and the moms that come to Safe Families, they don't have anyone. And they're trying to raise their kids as best as they can, but they can't do it alone. So we're here to help them.
4: No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. We care for orphans by Sponsoring a vulnerable child in Ethiopia and by working through a microfinance organization to loan money to single parents who are entrepreneurs in the third world.
0: And we're also an adoptive family. We brought our son Daniel home from Ethiopia six years ago. He is no longer orphaned. He's now a part of our family and we call him our own. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. We care for orphans by
4: We are partnering with an organization called Safe Families. We've been a host family with them for seven years, and we've uh, made an impact on several kids' lives that's been very uh, rewarding for us. We have adopted a child, uh, Jaden, and we are trying to get more involved with organizations that are having an impact on human trafficking.
0: These are our kids. This is our family, Liam and Kate. We adopted them from Russia and we're teaching them to appreciate their stories and have a love for orphan care.
1: We care about orphans because we were orphans once.
0: I am caring for orphans by supporting my daughter in her Kenya-based Cocos Village Orphanage. I also spearhead a letter-writing financial campaign from the side of the, the world. And in 2012, I was able to visit Patricia Sawo in her Discover to Recover Center in Kenya. We
3: care for adoptive families who need respite We walk, uh, kids walks, or I walk 50 miles every year for a home of kids in South Africa to help keep them protected and the medical care and school needs. And I also have a tiny bit of familiarity of what it's like to be an orphan and know how much we need a village to take care of us, raise us, love us, and remind us of how valued we are as God's children.
1: No one can do everything, but everyone can do something.
0: We are caring for orphans by welcoming kids from our community into our home. We are a foster family and a host family with safe families for children. We love kids. We love Jesus.
4: Matt leaned over to me during the video and told me that the video was wrecking him, and I hope it was wrecking some of you. As you've heard this morning from Johnny and as you've heard in the video here, Orphan care is so much bigger than, it goes far beyond adoption, and yet adoption is a very crucial component of orphan care. It can provide the best kind of permanency for many children, a forever family. My wife and I adopted six years ago, and that process proved to be quite a journey for us. But not everyone is called to adopt. In fact, I don't recommend that anyone adopt unless and until they're quite certain that God is calling them to adopt. You see. Adoption and caring for adopted children can be quite trying at times, and you need the assurance of that calling to lean on when times get tough to remind you of why you're doing this and to help you to persevere. With that said, there probably are people here in our church who are open and willing and being called by God to welcome a child into their family through adoption. We want to join with you and we want to support you in that as you step out in faith and follow that calling. In my own story, my wife Karen and I discussed adoption, and prayed about it for many months. And Karen became convinced pretty quickly that God was calling us to adopt. I was open to that, and I developed a desire to adopt. I just was struggling with the financial burden that, it was, that came along with the adoption. We had uh, started investigating it, and we knew that the kind of adoption we were considering was very expensive. And I just wasn't sure how we were going to pay for it. I sought the Lord, and I started praying and listening and praying and listening. I just wanted to hear clearly from him. That he was going to tell us, yes, I will provide for you financially, but I just wasn't hearing it. And then one Sunday, Pastor Dave preached a sermon here where he challenged us to pray and ask God for big things, things that couldn't happen unless God intervened. At the end of the sermon, he gave an invitation to come forward and pray with a pastor and elder down front here and ask God for something big like that. I vividly recall Karen turning to me at the end of that sermon with a look in her eye that said, we're going down front to pray, right? <laughs> so we did. We came down front. We found Matt Davis, and we, I walked up to Matt with tears in my eyes. And I remember telling Matt, we want to adopt, but we just don't know how to pay for it. So we prayed with Matt, and we made a big request of a big God. Around that same time, I was reading a book called If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. And I got to the part in that book where the author asks, is there any challenge in your life? right now that is large enough that you have no hope of doing it apart from God's help. If not, consider the possibility that you are seriously under-challenged. He then goes on to tell the story of the Israelites arriving at the threshold of the promised land, and those who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant had to step foot into the waters of the Jordan River before the waters would part. When I read that, the thought occurred to me that maybe the reason I wasn't hearing the clear assurance from God that he was going to provide before we started was that he wanted us to step out in faith and to trust him. So shortly after that, we filed an application with an adoption agency and we wrote our first check of many. And soon after that, a friend of mine told me that he and his wife, once they learned about the tremendous expense that we were going to incur, they wanted to help us. They wanted to be a part of that and and contribute to that. We then found an organization that would receive contributions from friends and family on a tax-deductible basis that could go toward our adoption. We would submit uh, uh, receipts to them after we'd incurred the expenses and they would reimburse us out of those funds. We let a few handfuls of friends and family know about the opportunity to support our adoption in that way, and the funds started coming in. God started providing. And it's hard for me to put into words for you how much of an encouragement it was to us when that started to happen. You see, we knew that we were going to be challenged and stretched through our adoption. We knew we had some idea of the kind of faith journey we had just embarked upon, Uh, particularly starting that process without knowing exactly where all this money was going to come from. And to start seeing friends and family making gifts, big and small, toward our adoption made us feel like we weren't in this alone. We felt so supported. In our story, I was the one who was dragging my feet in the adoption process. And I later learned that I wasn't unusual in that regard, that the husbands are almost always the last ones to get on board. And often the reason for that is the financial burden. That's why we're very excited today to be able to share with you that we have established here at Calvary an orphan care fund. We now have the opportunity as friends and family and as the body of Christ to help families who are stepping out uh, to care for orphan children through the, with the accompanying financial burden. We want to be able to provide that boost of encouragement to those families that says, we support your calling to care for orphans, whether through adoption or some other means. And the first demonstration of that support is going to be that we're going to help you with that financial burden. And then we're going to help you in a hundred other ways, because we want to make sure that we do everything we can to ensure that your efforts to care for orphans are successful. So from now on, anytime you make a gift to Calvary designated for the Orphan Care Fund, it will, those funds will go into that fund. I'm thrilled to be able to tell you that uh, already through the gifts of just a a handful or so here at Calvary and through a recent Kids Walk for Hope, we already have a balance in that fund of over $13,000. We would love to see that grow considerably so that we can provide some real, meaningful financial support to families who are wanting to adopt or care for orphans through other means. So it's not on the the envelopes on the rack in front of you, but anytime you write orphan care fund on that check or on the envelope, it will get into that fund. If you are interested in adoption, if you're already in the process of an adoption, if you are interested in or already pursuing other orphan care avenues that require a financial burden, and you would like to apply to receive a grant out of this fund, please inquire of Pastor Matt or of our church CFO and fellow adoptive father, Michael Wells.
3: Yeah, and in addition to that, a couple other next steps we want to give you today. In the bulletin, the booklet you got when you came in, there's a card in there, an insert. We'd like you to pull that out right now and look at it and just give you some basic ways of next steps. What can you do beyond this morning? And as you look at that card on the bottom, there's a place to write some of your information and then to tear off that bottom piece. What I want to challenge you to do today is to take this card, write your information, tear it off and go to one of our 13 nonprofit partners in the lobby and prayerfully give that information to one of these agencies' nonprofits with just the idea of, hey, I just want to pray for you. I want to get more information of how I can be an auxiliary support to what you're doing here. So I challenge us to do that uh, as we leave today. Johnny will be out in the lobby. He would love to meet you, talk with you. We also have his book, Orphan Justice, which... Again, using that word wrecked has been so wrecking to me in all the good ways, and so I encourage you uh, to take a look at that. And then at 1215, we're going to have a lunch It's free in Fellowship Hall for anyone that would want to do a and a with Johnny, as well as hear a little bit more about one of our partners, Safe Families uh, for Children. So That's going to be in the Fellowship Hall at 1215. Then a couple other next steps is uh, next Sunday we have our Reach Life Lab. and This is an opportunity. Maybe you don't even know what your spiritual gifts are. What would be a gift I could even use in the whole realm of orphan care? And so I challenge you, that's going to be next Sunday afternoon and and you can jump in to that as well. But as we continue this idea of being followers of Jesus and this followers series, part of it means we care for those that are fatherless. And so with that, let me just pray. Continue to worship and respond to what God's doing in each of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to be one of your followers. To, as Jason and Aaron said, to be adopted by you. God, thank you for that. May that reality become more real to us even in this moment. And as we follow you, God, may we respond to your adoption by caring for the orphans physically in our world. Give us wisdom, to show us, Lord, how that would be for each of us uniquely. And God, I pray for this offering, that that you would use this to bless the ministries, both locally and globally, and around uh, this kingdom, God, that you've created. That you'd use these monies um, for your glory, your power. we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.